Welcome to the Theology Pugcast. This is C.R. Wiley, and we are podcasting once again from Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut. And I'm joined by the friends that are with me every week. They still like me enough to actually hang out with me. And one of those is Tom. Uh, and Tom, why don't you introduce yourself and let folks know, and then we'll go to Glenn. Yeah, I like hanging out with you guys. <laughs> um, I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I'm C.R. Wiley, the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. Well, before we get into the sort of the meat and potatoes today, I want to say a couple things. One is, as you know, because we are complete like uh, technological neophytes, we don't <laughs> actually know how to track our audience. <laughs> but I have it on good authority that we are seeing about 10,000 downloads an episode now, which is completely, you know, we just started this show back in, in you know, March. That's right. We were like, will anybody be out there and care what we have to say? I was just out in Moscow, Idaho, and like every other person told me they were listening to the podcast that I, that I encountered. And uh, so uh, that's tremendously encouraging to us. We really are happy that folks are listening and actually getting something out of the shows. The other thing is that uh, for those who are longtime pugsters <laughs> who've been with us from the beginning, you know that we, we had a Kickstarter campaign a little while back. It allowed us to get some better equipment and it definitely has improved the quality of the show. Being in the back room here at the Pug also has helped, but uh, it has you know, improved the quality of the show. And we are intending, planning on, going to do another Kickstarter. We might go with Indiegogo. That's a competitor to Kickstarter. Uh, I need to talk to the guys and we need to figure out exactly what platform we'll use, but the real point is, is that we want to enhance the show, kind of take it to another level. We know that there are a lot of folks who'd like to see more people listen in. So just stay tuned. I don't have anything to share about that yet. We're just beginning the conversation. We'll obviously have uh, some concrete things that the money will go for, but a lot of it will have to do with enhancing the quality of the show and, and increasing its reach. But that's, that's that. Anyway, today, it's Glenn's day. So Glenn, what are we talking about today? Mm -hmm. Right now in a lot of evangelical churches uh, and distant or close cousins, there are, there's a movement toward uh, uh, increasing concern about social justice issues. And while in a lot of ways that's a, that's a positive thing, a lot of the ways in which it's being done I don't think are terribly healthy. So what I want to do today is we're, we're going to explore what's going on with that, where it comes from, uh, what the potential pitfalls are, what some of the solutions might be. So that's where, that's where we're heading. Okay, well, let's play it out a little bit. What, let's, what, what, are, okay. what do you mean? Well, I, I want to start off actually going back to the early 20th century. Um, you, you never can really start... Going into the Wayback Machine yes. with, with Sherman well, and, that, and P Mr. Peabody. Yeah, that's hardly way back by my standards. <laughs> Anything after 1648 is journalism. <laughs> but but um, the, in the early 20th century in America, it actually started earlier in Europe, there was a split that came up between what we would describe today as liberal churches that started emphasizing a, the social gospel and conservative churches who reacted against it to turn the gospel into purely evangelism. Up to this point, historically, the church has always seen the two as going together. You know, if you, if you look at what Jesus does, he tells people to, um, you know, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, and tell them the kingdom of heaven is near. Show them what the kingdom looks like. You know, live this out and then also engage in evangelism. You see this from the earliest days in the church. You know, the first charitable institutions in human history were created by Christian churches. Uh, you know, we can give example after example, hospitals, schools, all sure. of these kinds of things. Right. But 
what ended up happening because of the enlightenment and number of uh, ideas that were emerging from that, the idea came that, you know, we can't really talk about evangelism, you know, we can't really talk about the supernatural. We need to find some place for the gospel. We need to find some place for Christianity to fit. So, so as the culture secularizes, we're trying to figure out where do we play a public role. Right, where does religion fit anymore? And, and, uh, it, and yep. before you go to, and, and you're talking about a changed set of circumstances, and I think that's what Chris is talking about, because what happened before in Christendom is the church had a different relationship to the rest of society, and now the church is, is placed in a position where it has to figure out what role it has to yeah. play in right. society. Yeah. Yeah, we I see this in New England, for example. If you drive through any old New England town, where's the you know, congregational church? It's right in the center, it's on the town green, right next to City Hall. Now the evangelical churches are out in the office park, or in the warehouse, at the edge of town. You get my point. Right. Go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, as, as the society secularizes, they've got to find something to do with religion. Interestingly enough, a guy like Schleiermacher mm -hmm. is going to say it gives you essentially emotional experiences, which it, that's, Schleiermacher is one of the founders of liberal theology, and oddly enough, that's what evangelicals tend to emphasize. That's, uh, for, for us, we understand that connection, but for most of our folks out there, they would not think of themselves as liberal but they are. That's right. Yeah, if, if, if religion is really primarily about some form of experience, you're basically following Schleiermacher and right. the liberals. Right. But the other place that they found purpose for Christianity is in social action. It gave a foundation, as they saw it, for social action. So because they had ideas of the perfectibility of human nature and things like that coming from the culture, they didn't really accept the idea of the fall. They didn't really accept the idea that we needed salvation. But what we needed was help. And so the gospel got reduced to social action. In a reaction against that, the evangelicals came along, or people that we call evangelicals or fundamentalists, they come along and they say, no, 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 the gospel is about forgiveness of sins. So what they do is they cut off the, the social implications of gospel, which had always been there, right. in favor of emphasizing just evangelism. So you get the split that occurs. Right. The liberals go with social, the conservatives go with evangelism, when really the two of them, from the start, if you have an integrated kingdom vision, the two of them go hand in hand. Now, one of the things, though, that I think at this point would be a good to, to sort of, to, you know, sort of uh, present is the fact that before the Enlightenment, before modernity, there was no sort of sense in which there was a place for religion and a place for politics. Or, right. In other words, there was an integrated vision uh, which, which understood that we live in a creation created by God. Obviously, that's what creation means. It's been something created. And that within that creation, there are different uh, you know, sort of callings, you know, responsibilities. Sure. Uh, there's the work of the magistrate. There's the work of the, of the church and all that kind of stuff. But it fit into a larger framework. Right. So there was no like uh, private public. Now, like in, in our in our world today in America, for example, we think of religion as a private concern. You know, it's what you're into. It's what you do with your your your. What was who who said it? Was it was it Whitehead? I can't remember. It's what you do with your spare time. You know? Probably Jane, William James, someone so, like someone that. Someone like that. I can't remember. But yeah, exactly it has who. to do with in what gets privatized is not so much. The, the social, ethical, it's the, the, the doctrinal, devotional. Mm. Yes, that's right. So that's the stuff that you do with your, with your leisure time, with your free time. Yeah. But then the public sphere is supposed to be neutral yeah. and it's supposed to be uh, a place where everybody can play and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So we, neutral actually means anti-religious. That's exactly it, yeah. which becomes its own religion as we know. Right, yeah. I mean, the way I, I like to explain this, for a lot of people in America today, you've got, your, your life is a bunch of boxes on a shelf. You've got right. your work box and your family box and your recreation box and your, your religion box and all of these different things. The problem is that from a, a, you know, the traditional Christian understanding, Christianity is not a box. Right. It's the shelves that hold the box. It's, it's everything. It, yeah. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a very Kuyperian thing to say, you know, right. everything. Right. right. So, so in any event, 
What ends up happening then is you get this bifurcation, this division within Christianity where two things that were meant to go together with a proper Christian vision do go together are now separated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's a fault on both sides, the mm -hmm, fact is. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what's happened lately is that churches that have traditionally put more of a focus on evangelism or on doctrine and theology and things like that have discovered that issues like racism are a gospel issue. Right. The fact is, racism is sin. Mm -hmm. And it is an issue that the church needs to address. The problem is that because of the split that's occurred within the gospel, they don't have any resources that they can go to. They've lost the resources that they could have gone to to provide an answer for racism from a kingdom perspective, from a perspective anchored in a truly Christian worldview. And instead, the only place that they know to go is the answers that are offered by secular culture. Right. And so as a result, they're importing a lot of ideas that frankly are toxic Right. and antithetical to the gospel. And that's the problem that we're facing right now. Right. So what we need to do is explore what some of those ideas are, but that's, that's really where I want to go at this point. Yeah, this is like round three for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just to kind of give you a little bit of background, I did urban ministry and stuff like that. I remember when, you know, liberation the theology was a hot thing. Yeah. Uh, and then it kind of died out. Yeah. And then there was, you know, sort of, sort of, you sort of, uh, you know, uh, stuff that was going on in the late 80s, early 90s. So liberation theology is like 70s. Mm -hmm. And then you have late 80s mid to mid 90s kind of stuff related to multiculturalism, sort of first wave multiculturalism. Yeah. Now, and then, and then we thought it was all kind of, you know, gone away forever and now it's back. Yeah. And it's back with a particular uh, power force within evangelicalism. Now these last two things, you know, when we think about liberation theology, which is basically baptized Marxism. We think of Central and South America, we think of Catholicism, right? Yeah. And then what we have during sort of the rise of the new left and the sort of the ascendancy within the, the academy of multiculturalism, that's kind of a 90s new left thing in the United States. And then spreads to Europe and that kind of, now we've got this thing. This is like, this is a character, this is so characteristic of evangelicals. We're always late to the party. Yeah, yeah. Right. We're like the last adopters. Yeah, yeah. So, but they think they're really cool. Yeah. You know, they think that they're like hip for being, for getting on the bus last. Yeah. when everybody's getting off. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, well actually I was just talking to someone who was telling me that uh, she's taking courses in theology at Gordon-Conwell, and the big thing is... Your institution! I, I am not her professor, <laughs> sorry. Con con contextual theology. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, we and, know where that and, goes. And <laughs> I had not run into that phrase before, so I said, what is contextual <laughs> theology? And her answer was, well, feminist theology and mm -hmm. women's, uh, well, that would be feminist women's, um, but um, black theology and, you know, all of these other things. Well, they have womanist, which womanist. is distinct okay. from feminist. Yeah, okay. yeah which so is all spelled with Y's, so yeah. that we... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so all, all of these specific theologies, and all of this is falling into the trap that's been laid culturally yeah. by critical theory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let, me, let me just, before we get into critical theory, because I know we want to spend a lot of time there, let me just yeah. kind of do a little bit of sort of background for me. Yeah. I'm, all, I'm, I, I'm very familiar with, with contextualization theory. Mm -hmm. uh, that's basically missiology. Mm -hmm. And within the evangelical world, Fuller Theological Seminary was sort of the point of the spear. Yeah. So you know where Fuller is today, I know where Fuller is today, but I can remember when Fuller was still an evangelical institution. That's, that's kind of tongue-in-cheek. Carl, Carl Henry kind of days, right? <laughs> that's right, yep. back in those... But yep. anyway, I, I, was, I, I would have been on the faculty at Fuller if I had taken a job. I was offered the direct... I was offered uh, to the position of, of director of Brzee Institute in Los Angeles, California, back in like like 1992 or something like that, they had an agreement with Fuller that would have made me a junk with Fuller back in mm. those days. So I visited Fuller, I checked it out. Yeah. I could kind of smell a rat. I kind of saw where everything was going. Well, Nancy Murphy was on faculty. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> but, 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 but where this kind of bleeds into the evangelical world is Fuller is also the, the home of church growth. Mm -hmm. yeah. Phenomenon, you know, you, you know Donald McGavran, oh, yeah. you know, all those guys. Yep. So they were taking but they were taking a sort of market-driven approach. Yeah. So they would say, can, 
you know, they were all they were all into contextualization. They were yeah. into TEE, theological education by extension, all that kind of stuff, which was really kind of an evangelical sort of reworking of of liberationist pedagogy. Yeah, you know, in sort of an evangelical context. Now, I'm not against theological education by extension, but there was a kind of deeper pedagogy that was going on with all That's that right. stuff. And we might need to talk a little bit about McGavern and what he was really trying, trying to do. To do. Oh, well, That's a different I don't, I've got deep suspicions about McGavern. I, mm. I think he was a utilitarian to his core. Mm. That's my conviction. Because I read a lot of McGavern. I was in that world. I studied all that stuff. I know those guys. And, and I, I really do think that there is a kind of uh, synergy overlap between the church growth world and critical theory and contextualization and all this kind of stuff. Mm. They're actually buddies. So, so what McGavern was doing is he was, his, what he was contextualizing to was middle America mall culture. That's why all of our churches look like malls now mm -hmm. or like movie theaters or whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so well, that, that's a whole other conversation. That, that ends up being a different conversation. Yeah, let's, let's save that for another day. But I think one but of the interesting points is, is you know, whether you, you know, mm. however you take McGavern on that, it does, it does definitely come in the missiology and the, the, the field of mission studies is the hyper and often uncritical acceptance of sociological theories. That's exactly right. And I think this is what you have now starting to move into the rest. This is why you talk contextualization and theology. So context is fine as a certain limited determinant. I mean, we're all con you know, determined by all kinds of aspects. Um, but theology has never been saying, okay, um, have you not been determined by certain kind of aspects? What the qu question is, is what is, the, first of all, the chief determination and yeah. the fundamental to evaluate the rest? And so okay. theology has also off, always been saying there's one aspect that Christianity offers the world that cannot be domesticated into the, the contextual or the domesticated, and that's the transcendence yeah. of God. Right, right. Once that gets absorbed in, becomes immanentized within context, which I think comes through this same line that leads from to critical theory, Hegel to Marx. Um, once that happens, you 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 automatically have to listen to the con context because why? The logic of history for Hegel right. and Marx has to be followed. If you don't follow it, you're basically trying to make stagnant history and impose a status quo that is not moving towards becoming and fulfillment. Yeah, there are two things that get eclipsed by that yeah. sort of historicism. And by the way, we should get into historicism <laughs> and all the bad guys someday. But, yeah. but one of those things is transcendence, but the other is nature. Yes. You know, we've talked about this many times. Yeah, connected right where, to now, it. Now, so, you know, historically within the Christian faith, we've talked about sort of the natural order as God's mm -hmm. created, you know, order and that has meaning and bears meaning and, and, and is, is pre-political. Yes. It's there before the political. Mm -hmm. But for those guys, for the Hegelians and the Marxists, so that, none of that stuff exists. That's it's right. all political. That's right. The yeah. moment you try to lay claim to it, you are committed to holding history back. Yes. And limiting. Right. right. You're on the wrong side of history. History. Right. Yeah. Right. right. So uh, by way of background, here, um, there's a lot of stuff that's just gone. <laughs> yeah, we threw a lot of stuff at people today. We okay. threw what we've been so reading you, out you, you onto kind of, You kind of, you kind of, uh, you know, you know, gotten under our skin a little bit here. Yeah. So, okay. So, actually, let's start with Marx. Technically, you really need to start with Hegel, but let's start with Marx. Right, For present right. purposes, what we need to note about Marx is that he believed history was moving in a particular direction, and that direction was determined by economics called economic determinism, and it really had to do with expanding ownership of the means of production. Okay, that's, that's the bottom line here. A guy named Gramsci, an Italian communist in the mm -hmm. 20s, 30s, uh, comes along and he asks the question, you know, Marx predicted a proletariat revolution, it hasn't happened, why not? Gramsci's conclusion really revolved around what I would describe as worldview, although he called it the hegemony. What he said was that... That's a word we hear an awful lot. Right. What he said <laughs> is that the reason why the proletariat hasn't risen up is they've bought into the worldview or the hegemony of the bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they don't even realize their own oppression. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what false we, consciousness, all that False stuff. consciousness. 
Uh, so what we need to do is raise consciousness yes. through a union. I know that term. <laughs> right. Yeah. Any, anybody who lived through the 60s and 70s That's knows right. that term. Conscious raisining session. Yes. We, we, need, we need to raise consciousness. And the way we do this is through a union of the oppressed with the intellectuals. And by those coming together, we can create, Gramsci's term, a counter-hegemony, an alternative worldview that will allow the revolution to take place. In other words, we need a little muscle over here. We need the yeah, working we need class. Yeah. And, and a quick, quick, <laughs> quick thing for the audience, uh, especially the younger audience, is uh, raise consciousness is what you mean by being woke. Yes, that's right. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, contemporary, it's a, contemporary. That's, yeah, that's right. right. It, it yeah. goes back. It has right. a history. Right. It's, it's not so new. It wasn't it's new. Not it's not right. new. Like, you guys think you're hip? No. We're super hip. You're kind of conservative. But anyway, we won't say it. So Gramsci influences uh, the Frankfurt School, which influences the New Left. And ultimately, where all of this goes yeah. is the idea that the world divides into two groups. You've got the oppressors and the oppressed. And we're what? You're a white guy. You're a white guy. White heterosexual I'm male. I'm a white guy. I didn't even have Old a choice white in that. Heterosexual <laughs> That's right. male. That's right. Uh, That's yeah. So yeah, if Tom had hair, he'd be great too. <laughs> oh, Good thing it's not done along the lines of hair. <laughs> now you're getting personal. <laughs> so so the you know, so everything's oppressors and oppressed. And and I think we've talked about this before. It's, everything is seen as a zero-sum game. That's it. Right. So, so you know, zero-sum game shows up in economics. People are rich, and the reason they're rich is they make other people poor. Yeah, so, as a, so just so our listeners understand what we're talking about by zero-sum game, imagine a pizza, and Glenn, because he is the oldest white dude at the table, takes <laughs> Thank a, you very much. <laughs> takes a piece of pizza that's three-quarters of the pizza, leaving Tom and I with one quarter. Right. Thanks, Glenn. And, and, and because, because Chris is armed, he gets two-thirds of what's left. Right. So, so in any event, um, that's the zero-sum game. Right, uh, right. What it ignores is the fact that you can order another pizza or actually even start a pizza parlor. Or I mean, grow it's, the it's, pie. It's, it's, or it's make a pizza. Oh, sorry. Yeah, right, it's right. simply bad yeah. economics. Right. But, the, but it ends up getting applied systematically. So, for example, whites have cultural power because they've taken it away from people of color. Men have cultural power because they've taken it away from women, and so on. There's actually a thing from um, the Santa Barbara Unified School District that lists all the forms of oppression. I've got it saved on my computer at home. Oh, wow. Um, Let me it, guess, we don't look too good at you and me and Tom. No, well, cr Christians are, look really bad in general. Christians oppress everybody. Yeah, yeah we're terrible. So, so, so in any event, um, the other part of this is that uh, moral authority is a zero-sum game, too. If right. you're an oppressor, you lose it. If you're oppressed, you gain it. And as a result, it is really important for us to listen to the voices of the oppressed. Oh, and by the way, we've also got the idea of intersectionality. Intersectionality says that all forms of oppression are really facets of the same thing. Among other things, this means that the more categories of oppression you can put yourself in, the more moral authority you have. Now, just curiously, because even though I'm very familiar with all of this, do they have a term that uh, do is you know th that is similar where they talk about those forms at which all of the different forms of oppressor you are intersect? <laughs> because I'm sure it's there. You, you are yeah. like the apex. Like, the, I'm, I'm ready for the jargon. You know, actually, I, I've never run into that. Right. Not yet. Uh, it's it, really it, because it, the people it, writing it don't want to well, be found you know, out. The, the, funny, the funny thing is, whenever I'm told to check my privilege, I say, okay, got my wallet, got my keys, got my privilege. I'm ready to go. <laughs> okay. Ready for the so, day. <laughs> okay. So the, the problem with all of this, uh, uh, the, the number of logical issues are legion here. Right, right. Um, and, you know, we could get into all the things that are wrong Well, you know, logic this. is all about oppression, too. Right, yeah. So yeah. that's... I've actually run into in Seattle, they're arguing that mathematics is white privilege, basically. It, you know, right, it's... Right, right. Well, he, but here is an interesting thing, and it's worth, I guess, throwing in at this moment. And I think this is what creates part of the severe problem that this is starting to create is because logic, which used to be the means in any kind of way of resolving and negotiating with people in a society or between people, um, because that has now been brought into, it's been removed out of the realm of dealing with reality into sure. the psychological and the right. ethical. Right. Um, right. Therefore, its function 
is basically to, for the oppressor, to basically protect their privilege and right. biases and, mm -hmm. and, and the rest. And for the oppressed, it's a tool for unmasking those privileges and, and advancing. There is no, even with Marx, there is no way of coming to a negotiation. Any kind of alliance to be made is compromised with the oppressor. You become an right. oppressor at this point. Well, logic, when you think about it, it's logos. It's the root word mm -hmm. for logic. It's supposed to be common currency, and it really is common currency. Yeah. Anyone who's a human being has access to logic. Yeah. And unless they're, you know, yeah. physically or psychologically damaged in some way. Yeah. Which means that this is something that should unite us. Yeah. You know, yeah. not something that should put us at It should at, be at, at, at liberative for anyone right. on any... You and, know. and anyone who's, who's adept in using it, who yeah. really masters logic, yeah. should be able to uh, really prosper, should, should be able to flourish yeah. anywhere. But the problem is that logic and things like that are now defined as categories of privilege. Well, that's it, because it, everything because, is historicized. Well, it, not, only, not, not just historicized, if, in fact, the world has no meaning, which sure. is what they're assuming right, right. from the start, there right. is no intrinsic meaning in the world, right. then, well, all right, let's add one other component here. Remember the zero-sum game. The assumption is that all lifestyles, all structures of family and things like that have to be equivalent right. because there is no proper way of doing anything. Mm -hmm. What that means is that if there's any disparity of outcome, that has to be caused by oppression. Right, right. Okay. That's right. So even though, so for example, you know, I've seen the idea of a child being raised with his biological father and mother, yeah. his or her, biological father and mother, that is listed as an example of white privilege. No, it isn't. It is good decision-making. Yeah, it's good decision-making, and it, furthermore, it, it's got uh, a, a long history in many cultures. Mm -hmm. So this is not like something that, we, that yeah. Europeans invented. Or if you want to add to that, in the 1950s, the rate of out-of-wedlock out of births among African-Americans was lower than it was among white Americans. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's often, I think, brought up, but completely dismissed. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, you know, when I, when I talk to older black Americans, they can remember a, a, a time when there was a lot of health and vitality in their community. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're kind of in mourning. Mm -hmm. And a lot, of the, a lot of it really does have to do, uh, the reason, you know, sort of the, so, so for example, here we have people who really did experience r genuine racism. Mm -hmm. You know, at a level that we don't really see much of anymore. That's right, and we can't really fully appreciate, but they still had healthy communities mm -hmm. and, and healthy families. And then, you know, we've got this situation today in which, uh, you know, I, I have a friend named Ray Hammond who's uh, a, a African-American medical doctor, lives in Boston, is also a church planter, brilliant guy, went to Harvard when he was 16 years old, super sharp. And he said, when, it, when America gets a cold, black America gets the flu. <laughs> and so he says, what you can say is that black America is sort of like a leading indicator, kind of like the canary in the mine. What, and then he said to me, don't you think that you guys are going, you know, white guys, white folks, white middle class America are going to escape? Mm -hmm. You're actually going to get what we have. Yeah. It's just a little delayed. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know it, he was right. Mm -hmm. That's what we're experiencing. Right Okay, so let, let's get back to the churches. Right. The problem that we have right now is that in the broader culture, the way discussions of race or sexuality or gender or whatever, that's gone completely down the line of critical theory. It's gone right. completely around a Gramscian, New Left, whatever. Yeah, let's term get into critical theory because I think some of our listeners probably have heard of that, but they don't know mm -hmm. what it means. Um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, what I just talked about in terms of seeing the world in terms of oppressors and oppressed, and if you're an oppressor, you lose moral authority. If you're oppressed, you gain moral authority. It's a zero-sum game. All of that, 
That's sort of the layman's version of critical theory. Okay. That, that's really essentially how it works. Great. And there are various versions of this. You can get um, you know, black critical theory, which focuses sure. on the needs of African Americans, right. things like that. And it's, and, un, yeah, it's and, unmasking the, 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 the holders of power and then the, and who don't wield that power in a way that it allows everyone to have their fair share. Right. 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 So, so what, it, what ends up emerging here is you know, in, on you know, you mentioned liberation theology. That is basically warmed over Christianized Marxism. Sure. But that goes to Black liberation theology, sure. which adds a racial component into it. But people is like essentially, James Cohn and right, like that. It essentially has roots in the same kind of areas. Right. Um, they're identifying a real problem. Sure. Poverty is a genuine issue. Racism is mm -hmm. a general, genuine issue. Sure. I've seen so it. All, all, I've seen all, it. All and of these, in, they were often writing in life or death situations right. in, in Latin America as well as the, during the sure. civil rights movement, the social changes. Yeah. Sure, sure. And so th those are the voices that dominate the secular yeah. world in dealing with these issues. When the Southern Baptist Convention discovers the problem of racism when they begin to decide. That's a, you know kind what? of a funny way to put it. <laughs> when, 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 yeah, I'm sorry, I'm but sorry. there you have it. When, when, when they realize there's a problem of racism, because of that bifurcated gospel we talked about earlier, they don't have the resources that exist within historical Christianity right. to begin addressing the issue. So what they've done is they've gone to the secular world who are the only people that they hear talking about it. That's right. They don't, right. Go, to, they don't go to the church fathers. Yeah. Right. They don't go to any of the medieval people. Well, I mean, they're Baptists, yeah. but you know. Yeah. But, 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 <laughs> but they're, they're just sort of like the point of the spear. Again, I use that, yeah. that image. Yeah. They're the biggest Protestant denomination yeah, in the yeah. country. But, but you see, it could be there are Reformed denominations too. That's right. Um, Wesleyan, well, but Pentecostal. One of the things you they're do, showing up all over the place. One of the things you see with the point, I think, of discerning and resistance is this, that move within, I know, in Southern Baptist world, the ones that are, the ones that are confessional and that have tried to maintain something of the Reformed confessional heritage. That has provided the right kind of... Um, Point of reference. Right. I'm not saying it's it's an all oh, you know a full buffer. Right. But but what it has done is it allowed people to say, wait a minute, something's happening here, and they're starting to discern that this is this sounds very familiar. It sounds like it wants to creep in in a new way, and it's very attractive to people who don't have an idea really what's going on here. Yeah, and we've talked about this many times—the fish in the water kind of thing. You know, yeah. most of our most of our listeners, or many of our listeners, come from worlds where their pastors never, they, they just, and it's not their fault, but they never had an introduction to Western thought, let alone philosophy, yeah. you know, yeah. or, or yeah. patristic theology or anything right. like that. Right. So they're just not equipped. Yeah. And so they're in a vacuum. Yeah. And so whatever happens, you know, like when, when the, the, you know, the demon possessed man is, you know, yeah. delivered, you know, now the house is swept clean and seven more can yeah. come in or whatever number it is. Yeah. But so what you have is you have, you have uh, the vacuum being filled mm -hmm. with this essentially materialist philosophy, right? And we and should, we ought to get into materialism yeah. and how it informs Marxism. Yeah, eventually. I mean, yeah, we yeah we we can move there, but the the you know to put this in its simplest terms, let's take the idea of white privilege. Okay, one example of white privilege that you will run into is I am far less likely to get pulled over driving through town than if I were a, an African-American male right. driving while black. Right. It's a real problem. Sure. The problem, however, isn't white privilege. It's black disadvantage. Can you play that out a little bit? Explain the, the, the best way of solving that problem isn't to talk about the, the problems with, quote, whiteness or something like that. The best way of dealing with that problem is to deal with the mistreatment of African Americans. Right. It's get rid of their disadvantage. It isn't, you know, it's not my fault that right. I don't get right. pulled so over. Right, so this is back to the zero-sum game thing. Right, but right. somehow because of the zero-sum game, the fact that somebody gets pulled over for driving while black is blamed on 
people with white privilege. And well, no, it's not white privilege. That's not the issue. But, the issue but this, is, it, you yeah, know. This actually does get me to this material. Exactly. Right, yeah. right. So I, I, I wanted to just sort of get that example out there. Sure. Because the, the solution is not found in villainizing people. It's right. found in raising people up. Right. So right. Th that, that's a much more gospel-oriented solution. Right. But let's get into the materialist side of things. Um, Marxism is based on the idea, original Marxism is based on the idea that uh, of materialism, matter and energy is all that exists, which right. is why Marx reduces all of history to economics, right. which is where materialism plays out in its most direct and frankly simplistic form. Right. All of these other things are emerging out of that worldview. They're right. all coming out of that, and all of them express materialism in different kinds of ways. So let's stop here and just think about how that works. So your typical person on the street would say, well, I have ideas. What is the source of the ideas? Now, you know, Christians would say, well, you're an, in, you're an, an embodied soul. You know, there's some sense in which you know, even your ideas have their source in some transcendent realm, right? Something that's out of this world, literally out of this world. So your ideas are actually interactive with your material embodiment, not merely just the epiphenomena or the outgrowth. Of yeah, let's, let's unpack that. So yeah. like a materialist would say, it's all epiphenomenal. That's right. So, so what that means is that, let's say, let's think about it this way. I think a good image of it is, is like a, on a, you know, on a summer morning, when there's a lot of humidity and you wake up in the morning and the mist is sort of sort of rising from the ground right so the ground is the is the solid thing right but the mist is somehow with the sort of the physical interactions the result of these physical processes this mist it can be beautiful it can be almost a sort of uh, enchanting but those are even terms that we give to it that are sort of empty and poetic and just sort of yeah. psychological. I don't really believe that. I'm just explaining yeah, yeah. How, a, a, yeah. how, a, how a materialist would, would, would talk mm -hmm. about it. Epiphenomena means that your mind is entirely reducible to sort of biochemical processes. And your biochemical processes are entirely, you know, sort of dependent upon material realities and distributions and social structures and that kind of stuff. Right. So that means that all of our ideas in some sense are dependent upon the structure of the social order. Yeah. So anytime, if, if that's your presupposition, if that's where you're starting from, mm -hmm. that means that anytime that you make an argument for transcendence, what you're really doing is something really yeah. sneaky. Yeah. You're making an argument for protecting your, your privilege. Yeah. Check your privilege. Yeah. Which is interesting here, though, and nobody ever actually presses this, but why then do they turn it into ethical terms? That's exactly right. That's my problem with the whole agenda. That's mm -hmm. right. Is why are you ethicizing something that I'm determined and everyone else is determined to think? And to think that you somehow could transcend your own place to skip over those just because... See, what it does is it, it creates a... It, what it does is, is it creates an ethical system which those that it defines as oppressor is in a place of evil, and those that are victim are placed in a position of good. Yeah. And, so, and so by creating an ethical system, this simplistic dualism like that, which goes back to the rest, it, really it's a simplistic, it's manichaeism in a, in a right, right, mm -hmm. right, later right. form, we'll get into that some other right, time. Right. But I mean, when you have such a simplistic interpretation of things, um, but nobody actually presses in a materialist understanding of things, how in the world are you getting good and bad, oppressor and oppressed? By cheating! You're borrowing capital from something else. And now this may explain more why someone like a Southern Baptist or someone would be attracted to it. Sure. Because it has borrowed a moral vision, like all of the other Enlightenment views and views of justice, from Christianity. Matter of fact, social justice, <coughs> as we know, is a term coined out of Catholic moral theology. Um, we're talking 1930s, uh, you know, this is when it, the, the term was actually defined of that's a kind a of new virtue. It's a very interesting time for it to emerge, isn't it? it? Interesting <laughs> time to emerge, that's right. And also, of course, it gets hijacked within Catholicism by the strong left-leaning uh, communist movements. And, uh, you know, I'm just coming to realize how much uh, Jacques Maritain... They were Maritain much more powerful than we remember. Remember, yeah. and, they, and they still are. Um, but, but, um, but there are still a lot of... Um, 
classic uh, Catholic voices resisting the kind of um, the Marxist takeover, the concept within, within right, Catholic right. Christianity. But, but this, there is this whole dimension, and Marx too, why he moves it to the ethical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that's the motive force. That's so for example, if you, if you really think about this in materialist terms, yeah. really the better way to think about it is kind of an equilibrium. Yeah. What you're talking about is heat death. Yeah. Now, what, so, so if, if, we, if we talk about strictly, if we stay within the, the bounds yeah. of, of material sort of uh, phenomena yeah. and heat, you know, sort of the whole, you know, matter energy kind of thing, yeah. what is justice? Yeah. It's equilibrium. Yeah. But no one's excited about equilibrium. Yeah. It's like talking. It's like yeah. trying to raise money for the heating system in yeah. your church. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. you, you know, you, you know. It's sort of like there's no sexy. And why is that justice? Right. Well, the, for them, it's just that's just the the epiphenomena. That's the term. Yeah. That moves the proletariat yeah. to to act. But it's cheating. It's like it don't is. look at that man behind the curtain stuff. It's an imminentized. Going back to this, what, what do I mean by that? It's taking what was a, well, well, let me back up a little bit. In Christianity, history does have a telos. It has an end towards what it's working for, towards. It is working towards the perfect shalom, the perfect realization, the perfection of the creation in light of Christ's redemption. That's what the second coming and the king, it's, it's all about. It takes that, redefines that, puts it within this materialistic dynamic and says basically matter is working towards this state at which we are going to be fulfilled as creatures. Anything that gets in the way of it needs to be radically brought down and reconstructed from the bottom up is their language to, to actually put it in the flow of history moving in the right direction. How in the world, and this is a curious question for worldviews, how in the world do you get an inherent purpose moving towards a distinct kind of historical, meaningful end out of any kind of materialism? Well, well you, you can't. Yeah, this is the whole point of things being a social construct. Um, everything that we deal with, everything we think of as real is not necessarily what actually is. We're, we're in a Kantian world here where there's noumena that we do not have access to. All we've got access to are the phenomena. We only, everything we think of is real is utterly shaped and filtered by our social constructions, our, mm -hmm. the, the way our society envisions things. What that means is that you can actually control what passes for reality yeah. by controlling society. And language. So, and, and you do that through, through two things, control of language and through politics, which right. is why everything gets politicized. Right. It's why there are so many things about speech codes and PC stuff. Right. Right. And all of that is built around you basically imposing your vision. You're the ubermensch. You're gonna impose your vision of justice and everything else on society. What is interesting with this, this takes it a little bit of a different direction. <laughs> it's just intellectual curiosity. But what is interesting is this is not something Nietzsche would have been fond of. Because no, he was, no. Because he would have seen it basically, he would have seen right. the, the it, it basically hijacked the Christian vision, which he thought was guilty of the same thing basically creating guilt in the dominant in order to make them suppress their evolution so that the weak could actually arise. Mm -hmm. to yeah, people actually got Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. you know? They did. So what <laughs> ends but if up they actually understood it. And this is why I'm always saying that this sentimental humanism wedded to this social justice vision that is unique to the U.S. is this strange hybrid of something Nietzsche would hate Mm -hmm. combined with something Nietzsche would love. Yeah, mm -hmm. well that's it, you know, I, I often think of this very thing, it's yeah. just a weird thing to say, yeah. but you know, we have a lot of hawks, yeah. birds of prey in our area, you yeah. know, actually even bald eagles and oh, wow. you know, owls and stuff like that. Sometimes I'll sit out on my porch and I'll see a hawk. Yeah. He's come down, you know, he's descended, and then you've got this sort of flock of sparrows who are freaking out, yeah. and they're all sort of swirling yeah. around him, you know, and, and pecking, you know, sort of thing. And that, but of course, what happens is, is you know, he catches a thermal, and then yeah. he's up into the stratosphere where the, those little yeah. tiny birds could never go. Now, the birds, for a moment, feel like they've got power, because yeah. they, but who would you rather be? Yeah. 
Who would you, I'm thinking as a Nietzsche, yeah. Yeah. I like Nietzsche to think yeah. right now. So I'm making a Nietzschean argument here. Nietzsche would identify with the hawk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. He wouldn't identify with the sparrows. That's right. And what this ends up doing, and I guess this is always where you're trying to forecast the future, but what it, that ends up saying is, is basically this. Is, is that as, as the left tries to hijack sentimental humanism, what do I mean by that? A liberal humanistic vision that uses Christianity for its ethic about justice and goodness and uses that to manipulate a people to shame them basically into political action. Mm -hmm. Nietzsche would have been happy for that to be gone yeah. This view, th this group who utilizes this in the U.S. will not want that to be gone. Because what will arise when a people finally react to that who no longer care whether or not they're Christian or not? We've talked about this many times. It's going to be times. what sits in the abyss that Nietzsche yep. did not want to the look Blom at. The beast. That's right. And so what they're creating actually is not justice, but the conditions for the, the most heinous, form of what they are attacking as a straw man. That's right. They That's right. are creating conditions for people to move beyond good and evil, beyond being worried about justice, to where all they care about is their dominance and their power. When they raise that beast, mm -hmm. they're going to get what they were asking for. Christianity, a stupid Christianity would buy into that vision, is only helping the agenda to create that, that awful beast. beast. That's right. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's right, the Ubermesh. Yeah. So what we need to do, what we need to be thinking about, is what is the alternative? Mm -hmm. Because as Christians, we, you know, my, my, the phrase I always use is, is a, a, an integrated kingdom vision. What right, we need right. to be presenting is what, you know, these are real problems. Sure. So what are the resources mm -hmm. that the gospel has to address these. You know, I was with, uh, I was in a small gathering here recently and a young man expressed some anti-Semitic sentiments. And um, there were a couple of sort of uh, older men, or well, there were older men in the room who took him to task. And I think they did it really well. For one thing, they were very fatherly about it. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, that's not acceptable. But, you know, so, but it wasn't this sort of harping you know, sort of virtue sing signaling kind of thing that yeah. we're so familiar with, yeah. you know, from the woke. Mm -hmm. this, was a, this was a paternal, let me put my arm around you, son, and tell you why that's not a good idea, you know? And, and, and it was it really kind of, uh, first of all, I was kind of shocked. I've had a lot of Jewish friends. I yeah. grew up with Jewish kids, I, you know, I've, you know mm -hmm. and so, you know, I was just kind of stunned when this yeah. kid said the thing that he said. And, uh, but the other two guys in the room who knew the kid you know, didn't just sort of redirected spend, it. Well, yeah, they redirected. They didn't just shame him. Yeah. They, they, you, know, you, could, you could say the metaphor could put their arm around his shoulder and say, that's, that's not a good idea. That's not going to take you anywhere you want to go. That's not good for them. It's not good for you or anything like that. That's what we need. We don't need virtue signaling and tweeting. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, but I think the gospel can do that. Right. That's right. And we have, we have ample resources in concepts like the image of God, yeah, right, to address pretty much every issue that comes up with respect to any of these areas of injustice. And the one thing you will note that none of these groups talk about that are moving in the critical theory uh, areas, none of them go back to the image of God. No, no. It, it, because if you do that, it prevents you from going oppressor-oppressed. Right. And we, we've often talked about the way in which especially the, the evangelical world is much more, has, has embraced much more the cultural kind of neo-gnosticism mm -hmm. right. rather right. than the metaphysics of a truly biblical creation. Right. And one of the things I always press back to is when we understand who God is in himself and then understand the nature of the creation in light of who God is in himself, when we understand first and foremost that the whole gift of being that is other than God, is, I mean, when we understand creation as gift, we cannot move into a position of oppression over any other aspect of the gift character creation. 
So when we re re even read, have dominion over creation mm -hmm. as, a, as a certain role for the human creature, it can never be read in the way the Enlightenment dominance and right. colonization right. is read. Right. Those are perversions of right. something that is cultivating mm -hmm. the garden and receiving the good gift of, of every other. And that's why you have every tribe and nation singing right. in, the, in, the, in right. the heavens, because there, there you have the full gift character in communion. And what we're talking about there is healthy culture, you know, healthy communities, yeah. you know, history, yeah. which is understood in the right way. Yeah. And I think, you know, the point, that the, the, the example that I gave a minute ago was, in, was intended to sort of get across the, ne the need for legitimate hierarchy. You know, one of the things, of course, that we've talked about many times is how all of this stuff, this flattening of things, mm -hmm. actually is, uh, you know, sort of, uh, undermining the very m means by which we can have a redemptive engagement with people. So like the example that I gave, there were two older men who had authority. It was like, you know, authority was their mantle. Yeah. But it wasn't an authority that just was hectoring, yeah. just sort of condemning. It was, a, it was an authority that was sort of son, yeah. behave like a son, <laughs> That's not a way a son behaves. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was, a, it was an embrace. Yeah. So this, of course, is a reflection of the divine hierarchy. You know, our Heavenly Father, who brings us in and, and says, gives us a noogie rub. Or <laughs> so, you know, that, that was a stupid thing to say, son, but I love you anyway. And uh, let me tell you how you ought to think about this. Yeah. Yeah. We need that. We actually need authority. Yeah. We need hierarchy. We need fathers. We need yeah. patriarchy yeah. to bring these people in. And when we take sort of these people who are like, you know, yeah. the blonde beasts yeah. who are, that are being created by the yeah. left, yeah. what we need is we need, what we actually need is we need guys like us to take these young men under our, you know, under our arms yeah. and say, no, don't yeah. go there. That's right. Don't become, yeah. a, don't become a fascist. Don't do that stuff. That's going to hurt you and a lot of other people. Yeah, yeah. It's just not right. That's right. And it undermines the, the gospel. Right. And, and I think, uh, I guess uh, maybe another point to, to hit before, before we kind of wind things up is how, how in the world has social justice and critical theory um, become so attractive to something that would otherwise have been a very historical, almost fundamental leaning or a group yeah. of churches like right. the Southern Baptist Convention. Right. right, right. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with movements in the culture. One of the things evangelicalism has been exceptionally good at is following the lead of the culture. That's right. I mean, you yeah. know. The zeitgeist. We're going to change the world for Christ by following the zeitgeist. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm not going to talk about what they give up as the alternative to that. Yeah. But, um, but they're really good at following the culture. And if you yeah. look at college campuses now, what yeah. students are interested in, what, what, what they get excited about, are issues related to justice one way or another. And I and think so, yeah. so they're, and I, they're basically just following the trend in society, yeah. but unfortunately, in this case, they're following it not just, you know, there are genuine problems. And, I, and they're not addressing those because they're going at it the way the culture is. Yeah, and I think you both have hit it right on the note. Is, is evangelical has become culture Christianity. And isn't that an irony? Isn't, and in doing so, it's become the follower, not the leader of the ethical right. vision. Therefore, it's giving the university professors and the state the moral authority to do what it's supposed to be doing. And those people are following the, drum of their own, the beat of their own drum, which is, is expediency, which doesn't care about the rest, but it utilizes terms like church terms like justice and equality and all these things in order to, to keep promoting its, its privilege and power. Um, if anything, it really deserves deconstructing is the people who are actually promoting this ideology the most. Because my hunch is if we turn the lens back on those who are developing critical theory and the rest, they have a 
They have something in the game. Oh, they do. And the language is masking their own concern for their own privilege and power. And actually, if anyone is having power right now, it's those people in the universities and in the state and, and institutions of the West that are actually protecting their power and privilege under the cloak of a pseudo-ethical vision and religious vision that has basically simpletons brainwashed, if you want my opinion. Well, isn't it beautiful how <laughs> Don't we can... Don't hold that, Tom. Tell us what you really think. That's right. I'm that's acting right. like a Southern Baptist today. I did grow up in But isn't this beautiful how we can turn their knives back on them? You can. That's right. But turn the gospel back on a Christian, and that's a good thing. That's right. In fact, we should try to turn the gospel on those guys, too. So maybe, maybe what this thing that we should think about is, first, first phase, turn their own knives back on them. Yeah. Unmask their own agenda. Yeah. Yeah. And then, let's talk about reality. Let's yeah. talk about transcendent truth. Let's talk about what's real. Yeah. Let's talk about, you know, what our Heavenly Father right. has for us. Amen. Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, something I saw a while back. Somebody pointed out that to Michael Moore that he was in the top. This is when he was railing against the 1%. Somebody pointed out to him that he was in the top 1% of income in the country, and he just went ballistic. He just didn't know how to deal with that fact. No, it, which is so weird because it's just so obvious. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, there was a point in my life where I was a leftist. Yeah. I was maybe a leftist light, but I actually introduced people to Michael Moore remember Roger and me? Yeah. Oh, that was a, I, I used to use that in class and stuff like that. I tell you what, I ruined some people. Yeah. That's one of my great regrets. Yeah. Is that I can actually name people that I helped to corrupt. Yeah, that's a... You know, and I, uh, I, I really mourn uh, about that. You know, when I finally yeah. came around, yeah. uh, you know, I used to wear a dashiki cap and yeah. <laughs> I did the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I... Uh, I'm even old enough to know what a dashiki <laughs> is. <laughs> With my tie-dye shirt. Yeah, that's right. yeah. But anyway, but that, I regret those years. Yeah. I regret those years. Yeah. I, uh, I know that whole scene. I know yeah. the liberationist scene. I, I read Paulo Freire and yeah. Daniel oh, yeah. Saul Alinsky and all those guys. <laughs> and those, uh, those were good years in one way, but in another way they were bad years. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'm try I've been trying to live them down ever since. Yeah. But the thing about those bad years is they're some of what made you what you are and that establishes your priorities and your perspectives now. It also, makes, it also inoculates me. When I see this stuff, mm -hmm. I just laugh. Yeah, I do I the see same. You people are fools. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're children. You have no idea yeah. what you're playing with. Yeah. Anyway. So the thing that's worth noting here is, you know, I've, I've talked about race and things like that as one of the issues. but. Another part of this is that in order for the utopia to be reached, and they are utopians, right. and by the way, if you scratch your utopian, right. you always get a totalitarian. That's right, and it's no place. Utopia, no right. place. Right. But the, the, the thing that they have to do is constantly find new oppressed peoples to put into their coalition. Mm -hmm. uh, the latest one uh, right now is transgender. Sure. But, um, the, and it's the, delightful the, to see how that undermines one of their early adopters, feminists. Right. And, and this, this is the, the, the trick about this that I find utterly fascinating because the idea is if uh, virtue is a zero-sum game and if you gain virtue by being oppressed and if you accept intersectionality so that all oppressions are the same, then sooner or later, as your victim pool increases, you start getting things that are incoherent. Mm -hmm. So you get transgender athletes, right. quote unquote, who are beating girls in high school sports right here in Connecticut. Right. You get, you know, so you're getting a split between the feminists and the transgender. You're actually, I'm seeing arguments that the LGB needs to split from the T. Isn't that interesting? Because, yeah. because their entire ideology is built around things that don't really actually fit transgender. You see people who argue against homophobia also argue against Islamophobia. Yeah, right. When homosexuals sure. get executed in right, right. many Muslim countries. Right. Yeah. Uh, feminists yeah. and, uh, and Islam. You know, there, there, are, there are so right. many incoherences within right. this thing Right. that the ideology just masks. Right. Basically, right. any static social form has to be undone. And that's why you keep seeing this. So you can't arrive at a, a, a point of stasis with any kind of intersectionality anyway. Mm -hmm. You have to keep developing new ones because the logic of history has to be moving towards 
this kind of... Well, this gets me back to my point about heat death. You know, yeah. when we think about heat death and, you know, with regard to physics, yeah. physics is, you know, when we talk about materialism, yeah. that's what physics, physicists study is yeah. matter and yeah. energy, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, so what is the, the sort yeah. of the final point or mm -hmm. sort of where do things arrive at? Yeah. They arrive at heat death. Yeah. which is stasis in the worst sense. Yeah. Now, when you said stasis earlier, I knew you were meaning yeah. a healthy sort of structure. Yeah. But what, what, yeah. what heat death is, is the end of the universe. It's, the, it's, yeah. it's the final. Now, I don't believe in heat death, yeah. you know, because I'm a Christian, but, but I'm talking about yeah. within the framework of a physicist worldview yeah. or sort of working out, you know, entropy and all of this kind of stuff, entropic yeah. process. But that's really what yeah. is sort of happening with Marxism. Yeah. Marxism is heat death. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, justice and equality are another for, name for heat death. Yeah. Because when you think about life, yeah. any form of life, it's hierarchical. Yeah. There's a structure, there's a, there's a hierarchy. If you look at your own body, yeah. there's a hierarchy. Yeah, it's a, it's a battle against form. I, yeah, think that's, that's, I think really that's what we're seeing. I think that's what Marx is, is a battle against all form. form. In, yeah. in, in having any kind of enduring, permanent, right. any kind of permanence. Right. Even right. if there is development, shape, fall, all the rest, but I think there really is this war on, on that. And so there, there isn't, you can't arrive at a place of where you get all the alphabet letters right and everybody gets an equal share in there because any time there is any differentiation, you've already brought into the equation something to differentiate, some kind of, some kind of distinguishing character, which always is going to have elements that one is going to be distinguished by the other in a way that one's advantaged by the other. Yeah. And along with this, it's worth noting that in all cases it ends up being a battle, in a different sense, it ends up being a battle against nature. Yes, right. Yeah, right. You know, yes. we we see that, and and that's connected with the idea of hierarchy or the I idea of forms or yeah. any number of other things. Right. It is an absolute attempt to yeah. cut ourselves off from anything that is ultimately natural and to reject that there even is a natural. Interesting. Right. I think what you have going on is is you have. The, the, the marks and the whole trajectory is basically, I'm go not gonna steal the doctrine of creation. I'm gonna war against it, but I'm gonna war against it by a, a Gnostic or a perverse, let's put, say a perverse, a perverse understanding of redemption and eschatology. Mm -hmm. That's what Marxism is. It's, it's the, what is eschatology? But the inbreak right. and the apocalyptic that does basically destroys yeah. the old makes the new. Mm -hmm. And so what they do is they don't have the classic kingdom vision that there's continuity and fulfillment, fulfilled mm -hmm. natures brought up right. into the fullness of the kingdom. So what they do is they bring this com complete lev leveling eschatology, this, this somehow this uh, you know, future you know, heat death is brought right. into the now, it does its destructive work, but there's nothing about it. Its whole war is against the original creation. See, what, what, and, and this is actually why yeah. this, the critical theory, I mean, you know, we're, we're peeling away at a lot of the basic ideas of critical theory and getting at the core. This is why it is so incredibly dangerous. Yeah. And so, yes. Yes. so utterly destructive to anything like a kingdom vision right. or like, like the gospel. It's because, you know, in, in the kingdom, you know, it's new heavens and new earth, but there's a connection to the old. Jesus' yep. body wasn't in the tomb. That's right. There's right. a connection to the old. What they're out to do yeah. is in their rejection of nature, in their rejection of, yes. of everything, yeah. ultimately, yeah. that is natural, they are fighting against the beginning. They're fighting against Genesis 1. Yes. They're yes, fighting against right. Genesis yes. 2. Yeah. And you can't do that. That's the foundation of, from a Christian perspective, that's the foundation for everything. Yeah. Right. And the fact that they, they are rejecting the natural, rejecting nature, rejecting natural law, rejecting natural order, hierarchy, form, in, in pretty much every sense, in, in, yeah, it, is, purposes, it yeah. is fundamentally corrosive yeah. to yeah. everything that Christianity stands for. You remember the, the uh, Kurt Vonnegut story, Harrison Bergeron? I haven't read that one. You read Harrison Bergeron? 
It's where the Harrison Berger, it's, it's a story about this vision, basically about it. Yeah. Let me just kind of give you a quick summary of it. So, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, you know, he's, he was a great writer and something. But anyway, he wrote this story entitled Harrison Bergeron, where he describes a world in which they finally achieve equality. But the way they, they achieve it is anyone that has any kind of physical gifting or advantage is somehow handicapped. So Harrison Bergeron is this sort of Superman, this sort of ubermesh. He's a character who's incredibly, in, you know, smart. Yeah. Incredibly strong, incredibly good-looking, incredibly mm -hmm. athletic. He's incredibly everything. He's he is public enemy number one. <laughs> and so what they do to him is they have to weigh him down with weights. They have to put like clown makeup on him. They have to do all these different things to make him look ugly and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And then he breaks out of prison yeah. just for being himself. He yeah. just like he breaks out of prison. And then while the while the public announcement you know, is being made, you know, Harrison Bergeron is on the loose, <laughs> you know, uh, he, he actually comes into the television station and takes over and declares that he's going to take over the world. <laughs> and anyways, uh, but it's a, it's a fun story, yeah. but it, it, in an amusing way, it illustrates all the absurdity that we've just been describing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, you know it, when you have a, a frame of, 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 a framework like what we've just described, yeah. gifted people yeah. are a threat. Yeah. They're not a blessing. That's right. They're not a blessing. They're a threat to the rest of us. We have to we have to yeah. eliminate them. And at the end of the at the end of the story, Diana Moon Glampers, this is marvelous. The uh, lesbian, you know, handicapper general, kills him with a shotgun. <laughs> and that's the way the story ends. Think about that. That's yeah. what that's what the left gives us. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Anyway, on that thought, we, we've, we've gone a little long. We should probably wrap up. Anything you want to say in conclusion there, Glenn? Oh, I think we've gone a lot of different places here, but the main thing that I really want to emphasize is we can complain about critical theory all we want, but what we really need to do is focus on a positive vision, which is offered to us in recovering a full orb gospel. That's it, recovery. We yeah. need to recover things. We actually need to read some theology. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Anything you want to say there, Tom? No, I think Glenn's right on the money. I think we have the riches, we have the vision, um, we have the, the actual power yeah, <laughs> in right. Christ and the Spirit. That's right, because the, our source of power comes from another place. <laughs> another place, which actually can deal with the root of things, which fundamentally is sin. And yes, sin can get, become structural, it can become societal, but you're not going to rid that by really reshuffling the sin deck. That's I mean, right. as simple as it gets. That's where you're you're going, I, we got to use that again. Reshuffling the sin deck. <laughs> you just can't do it. You're just playing another game of cards, but right, you're still right. gambling. You know, it's that's just, right. It's, that's right. Yeah, and the house always wins. The house always wins. That's right. And then this particular house is run by the devil. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I don't have anything to add. This was fun. I, I thanks for bringing up this topic, Glenn. It was. It's been a good one. And. We hope that you've enjoyed the Theology Podcast, that something that uh, was said today was helpful and useful to you. By the way, if you want to support our work, it's possible. Uh, there is uh, something called the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and you can become a member of it. And if you go to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and become a member of the network, you can designate the podcast, uh, our show, as the show you want to support. Some of your funds, of course, will go to underwrite the overall cost of the Fight, Laugh, Feast network, but some of those funds will come to us. So if you want to support what we do, that's a way to do it. Of course, we could use your prayers and sharing the show to, with other people. Both those things are appreciated, too. Anyway, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye now.